0: We welcome you to Pursuing Justice. I'm your host, Harriet Hendel. Today, we are going to meet author Andrea Elliott. Her book, one of the 10 best books of 2021, according to the New York Times, is Invisible Child. Andrea is an investigative reporter for the New York Times and a former staff writer for the Miami Herald. She has been awarded a Pulitzer Prize and several other prestigious awards. It is a great honor and privilege to be able to spend time with her today. But before we begin, I must thank Lisa Pally, who is with the Miami Book Fair, for making it possible for me to read Andrea's book prior to publication. The Book Fair is the oldest, largest collection of literati Bringing together a community of readers and writers of all ages with authors. Before the pandemic, 250,000 people gathered in Miami for the fair held at Miami Dade College. Authors come from all over the world. And last year was the 38th edition of the fair. Thanks for joining us, Andrea. Welcome.
1: Thanks so much for having me, Harriet.
0: Okay, I want you to give us the background of how and why you chose to write this particular book, whose themes are poverty, homelessness, racism, hunger, and so much more. Let's go back to 2012, where you started.
1: I never thought the sunny day that I met the central person in this book, Dasani, that I would wind up spending nearly a decade of my life trying to understand her story and all the themes that you just mentioned that would have felt impossible to me and and many times during this journey of writing this book it did feel that way Mm -hmm. because it is a book about so many things but at its center is Dasani Coates she was 11 years old when I met her and I was standing outside a homeless shelter in Fort Greene, Brooklyn trying to find my way into what I thought was a really big story at that time. And it was underreported, which was the fact that there were more than 22,000 children living in homeless shelters in New York City, one of the richest cities in the world. And I think I wanted to just understand what it was like to be deeply poor growing up in one of the richest places. And that contrast, which was playing out day after day in her own neighborhood, she would wake up in a room with her nine family members, eight of them were children, and the two parents crammed together a room overrun by mice and where they had to use the mop bucket as a toilet. And she could step outside her shelter, and within a few paces, uh, maybe a minute or two, she would be in the presence of townhouses that were selling for millions and fancy restaurants. So it was the contrast of those two worlds that... I thought was important to understand. And also just the fact that we had such a high child poverty rate. It's one of the highest child poverty rates in the world for any developed nation. So it all began there. And I had been looking uh, for a kid who wanted to talk. It's hard with children. I know I'm a mom Mm -hmm. (laughs) and some are uh, more willing to open up than others. And this was a kid who, from the moment we met, didn't want to stop talking and almost everything she said, I wanted to write down. She just (laughs) had this charisma and, um, um, she was hilarious. She's a really funny kid. And, um, it's sort of a rule of thumb of mine that if I'm going to spend, and I have devoted much of my career to immersion, which is when, you know, spend, um, years sometimes, but, or maybe it's months immersed in the life of one person, that it helps if that person has a a real sense of humor because you're going to spend a lot of time with them. And (laughs) I found myself laughing almost from the instant I met her. And one of the first things I wrote down about her was her name. She said, my name is Dasani, like the water. And she was very proud of her name. And it's a very important name because her mother chose it from shelf of her bodega. At the time, this was in Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn, in 2001. She was pregnant. Her mother's name is Chanel, named for the perfume. She was pregnant with Dasani, and she was looking for a name. And Chanel had been named for a perfume that her own mother had seen in a magazine in the 1970s from a very segregated part of Brooklyn, where just looking at a magazine was the closest you could get to this other world, this wealthy world. And now... Chanel was standing in this bodega and the bottled water had come to her. It had come to her neighborhood. And it was a sign to her mind that something was changing and she was absolutely right. She thought, who could pay, who would pay for water? Um, it felt like such a luxury and and even just the sound, Dasani. Um, and the the answer to that question was that there were people moving in to Brooklyn who could afford it. It was changing. It was about to go through a meteoric phase of gentrification. And her name that she chose, Dasani, and then the next child who came was named Aviana after Evian Water. Mm -hmm. That represented to Chanel's mind this better life.
0: Interesting. Um, Including footnotes, your book is nearly 600 pages. What time span did you cover? And I wanted to say that you literally watch Dasani, Aviana, Maya, Haida, Papa, Kalik, Nana, and baby Lily grow up. What stays with you when it comes to each of those children?
1: So the timeline mm. is about, it's just under a decade, really. Mm. It's that the book begins in real time reporting in. October, 2012, and it ends in 2021. Um, And, you know, with the final things that I wrote at the very, very end (laughs) coming in. So I, I don't think I would have ever finished this book if I hadn't been forced to, because there was just so much to capture and things just kept happening. These children went through so much and each of them is just as special as the next. I think I focused on Dasani because I thought readers would feel compelled uh, to want to follow her story because she's such an outspoken person and she was able to articulate her experience so well. But she was also in charge of her sibling. She was the second oldest child and she took on the role of a, a kind of another parent in that home. And so she was sort of more the star, I would say, of the bunch and Aviana was her right hand, her closest near twin. They were so 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 close. Uh, they they shared the same mattress, the same pillow, the same dresser drawer. Um, they uh, they they really felt like almost inseparable. And um, Hada and Maya and Papa and Lily were the children that Dasani's mother had with Dasani's stepfather Supreme, and. Um, he also brought two children into the marriage. So it was a bit of a Brady Bunch mm-hmm. because Chanel brought in Dasani and Aviana and Supreme brought in Nana and Kalik. And they came together and formed a family and then had four more. And people sometimes look at this family and say, well, how irresponsible. The cho- the parents are chronically unemployed. They can't seem to hold on a job. They struggle with addiction. You know, why did they have so many kids? And in the beginning, that was a question that I also wanted To ask and understand the answer to. Um, And what I found, not just in their answers, but in the lived experience of being with them, is that nothing mattered more to them than that sibling bond that they had yearned for, Chanel and Supreme. And it had been broken when they were children, for reasons we can talk about. They yearned to have that for their own kids. They wanted to recreate this sort of lost family that um, they, they both grew up not knowing, having long periods away from their own parents, um, broken homes and being separated from their their siblings. Uh, and they just were determined to heal that wound in this next generation. And in part because they felt, both Chanel and Supreme, that they had fallen to the street in search of an alternate family, that they had joined gangs because they didn't have that Um, principal uh, base. And as Chanel put it to me, I didn't want people who aren't your brother or your sister calling you brother and sister to her, you know, her kids. She wanted them to have real brothers and sisters and not to have the street become their family. And so that was a big part of it. And I think that they had big ambitions as parents. They wanted to educate their children in their religion, uh, which is an offshoot of the Nation of Islam and um, they just, they, they wanted to give their kids a lot more than they were able to, hmm. but they never lacked for love. I will say that.
0: Would, would you, in knowing them so well, would you say um, they are a typical family?
1: Well, I often think of the Mary Carr quote, uh, she says that the defini- definition of a dysfunctional family is any family containing more than one person. <laughs> and I think what's so universal about this story is that w- no matter where you come from, what your background is, almost anyone can relate to family being both a burden and a blessing. And, and sometimes in, in different quantities. <laughs> uh, we know that family is complicated. Um, th- so every family is in its own way. Uh, are they typical? I think that their problems are very representative of the problems faced by black and brown families in poverty. Yes. Um, they are atypical uh, among the poor, whether white or whatever background, racially or ethnically, in the sense that uh, they're married. Chanel and Supreme are married, which is not as typical as it used to be. Um, and I think that folks from a different class might look at them and say, this can't be what's happening in America. This is so extreme. But when I met Dasani, you know, she was among more than 22,000 homeless kids. Um, I, I do think that we have a serious poverty problem in this country. So I think that it's important never to assume that one individual or one family is representative of everyone that is coming from those same problems. But at the same time, I didn't want to write a book about three different families or five different kids and nothing against that. I think I I have huge respect for the authors who can pull that off. I just felt I think I would have been torn in too many directions. And I, I wanted the reader to be able to just feel as mesmerized as I was by Dasani and therefore invested in her story because I think just to know Dasani is to care. Mm-hmm. And once you care about her, her problems become your problems as different as they may seem at the very beginning. They wind up feeling very familiar. And that's what I hope people will experience when they read this book.
0: Hmm. Um, a, a very important question. How did you gain the trust of the entire family? and this is you know a large family, but in particular Dasani?
1: Trust is a working uh, work in progress. Trust is a work in progress is what I would say. Um, it it changes over time. I don't ever take it for granted. I was always uh, aware that the trust, could disappear or be called, um, into question or in some way that it was a fragile thing. Um, but that said, I think what really helped was the fact that I spent so much time with them. I think ultimately it just came down to the things that, the things that don't involve speaking. <laughs> mm-hmm. You can make your best case as a journalist. Here's why you should trust me. I, I don't like those pitches because our job isn't to uh, tell an incomplete story that might um, give the person we're writing about assurances. Uh, you're safe because I'm not going to, you know, I'm going to write this kind of story. And it's that's not our job. Our job is to see and observe and capture as close to a truth and I wouldn't say the truth of a story as possible and to back it up and to dig deeply and to really, um, really keep the trust of the reader more than anything. Mm. So at the same time, you know, obviously I care about this family and I think that they saw that and I never felt that my caring for them came into conflict with my need to tell An absolutely accurate story. I think at the end of the day, that's because children are not responsible for their problems. And if anyone was going to be angry, it was her parents. But it was so many years of searching for documents, trying to show their life through the records that they knew I had my hands on literally everything. They were very brave Mm. um, in, in opening up their lives to me because they, I think what they trusted was the worth of their own story, its importance, and they trusted that it needed to be a book and that my purpose, I think, is what they trusted, which was to to shine a light on this part of America that doesn't get enough attention.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, I, I have two questions. Um, One of them is, uh, how were you able, in essence, to be everywhere in the daily lives of this family? And then at the end of the book, you say you read the entire manuscript to the children, so they were aware of what you had written. I wondered how they reacted.
1: So the book is written in the present tense, and it has an omnipresent feel. I, I, I understand that. I think partly it is that I just went to the mat when it came to reporting. Mm-hmm. I, um, I rely heavily on audio and video because especially when you're spending this much time reporting, things can get scrambled in your memory. I just don't think notebooks are enough. And so, but I have like 132 hours of audio um, accumulated of transcribed audio and 28 hours of video. So I also relied on cell phone technology. So when I wasn't there and something happened, I, I would have them capture it and send me the um, photographs or a recording. They were very um, cooperative in helping me capture their story. And of course, there were more than 14,000 records and countless hours on the street. And so that's, I think, what enabled this omnipresent. And the reason I wanted to write it in the present tense was because I think you feel a sense of urgency when you are in the present tense, which is always how I felt. I felt, what's going to happen next? It was a, a roller coaster ride to be in her life. And I wanted the reader to feel that way as well. So, um, when major things happened, especially when Dasani left her family to go to boarding school, and I was going between two different places, hours apart, one in rural Pennsylvania and one in Staten Island, I knew that a very powerful narrative device would be to show when something big happened in one place, what was happening that same day in the other place. And so one of the ways I did this was to keep a really careful timeline. And every day that something happened, I wouldn't just be recording it in the usual ways. I would be plugging it into the timeline and then checking with the, either it was Dasani or it was her family. What were you doing today? What happened to you a few hours ago? Where were you? Um, So that, those are the kinds of things that allow for that kind of narration. Um, And your second question regarding reading the book. Well, to write about how somebody thinks is a very big risk. If you are not talking to that person in detail (laughs) over and over again about how they would describe what they were thinking in a given moment. So I, wanted to get inside Dasani's head, but I did not ever assume I could unless she brought me there. And so those moments in the book are the result, the product of many conversations. And sometimes even I would write a draft, call her up and read it to her. And I could tell from her reaction if I'd nailed it or if it was still not quite there. It's very collaborative in that sense. But I still wanted one extra layer of assurances in the fact check process that she would read the whole book, not just for the fact check, but also just for her own well being. that she knew what the story said before the entire world saw it. And she kept saying to me, well, it's my life. I know what happened, so I don't need to read it. (laughs) And I think that there was some understandable nervousness um, on Dasani's part about having to relive these really disturbing things that happened and I didn't want to put her through that, so I also though felt that it was important for her to know what was in the book. So, I I sat down with her sister and her. We over the course of five days, they sat with me, and they're in their teens at this point. And I I know teenagers, my own teenager wouldn't read a 600 page book (laughs) (laughs) carefully for fact checking purposes, even if it was about her. right? (laughs) And I didn't trust that Desani would do that. Now her parents read it. They read it. They would come and sit and read it next to me over a period of days and give me some of their thoughts. But the girls, I read it to them because I, I also felt that that's what I owed them. I need some of this stuff was really hard to write. And I just thought, well, they, I want to see their faces when I read it to them. Because then they know that I am absorbing how hard it was for this passage to be a public thing. And nothing ever tripped them up, really. They weren't not surprised by anything. And a few instances, we all cried, actually, because this was some very, very sad stuff that we had been through. I watched them. I was there the day that they were taken away from their parents by child protection. So, you know... There were some sad moments. There were some hilarious moments. When we got to the very, very end, uh, I asked Asani if she would like to read the last few paragraphs out loud. Mm. And I videotaped this. She read them out loud. And she got to the last line and she said, is that it? And I said, that's it. And she (laughs) jumped on top of my dining room table and started dancing. (laughs) And I don't think it's because she especially loved my writing, although she says I'm a perfectly okay writer. I think she was just relieved that she didn't have to listen to me reading a book out loud for five days. It was done.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's great. So would you say for Dasani, um, overall that she welcomed what the book was trying to say, that she um, was happy that you wrote it?
1: We were just talking about this the other day. And I think what she would say, and I don't, I want to be careful here because it's Mm -hmm. really for her to speak about her reaction to the book, but she hasn't really gotten to a place yet where she wants to talk publicly. She's given one, interview to the BBC that hasn't aired yet, and it was very brief. Um, but what she told them and what she's told me is that she's very proud of the book, um, because she sees how much work went into it. And she, I think there must have been times where Dasani and everyone in her family thought, is this ever going to happen? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it went from me being there for 15 months and a series running, okay, there's proof that she, you know she actually delivered, to then me being there for a few years and nothing happening, to then it being like eight years in. <laughs> right. I mean, I I think people in my own family wonder what is going on, but I was just working like crazy the whole time. It was a behemoth, um, and you know, you you asked about what time span it covers. I mean, it doesn't just cover the the eight years that I followed them in real time, but it goes back uh, several hundred years and goes through history and tracks a family through. Generations, and so I think Dasani was very happy. For example, that I found out that her great grandfather was a war hero. No one in the family really believed him when he mm. was telling his stories about fighting in World War II. He didn't even say what war it was. It was just this distant war, and sort of on a lark, my researcher and I reached out um, to Veterans Affairs, and then that took months to even hear back. And suddenly, boom! This incredible, I'll never forget it, this big package arrives of his papers of his files and he had gone in a when the military was still segregated with an all-black infantry during world war ii to italy he had um returned with three bronze service stars i mean it was just an incredible hidden history Mm. that needed to be known so i think she's very happy that that her life is being noticed Mm -hmm. in this way. And certainly some things I think were hard uh, for her to know are out there, like her parents' struggles with addiction. But I I also think she sees that the reaction to the book has been so tremendous in terms of just supportive and people really are moved by her story. And I think that's what she's happy about. Good.
0: Well, we are at the end of our time together for today, but you have agreed to come back and talk to us again. And then you invited Josh Goldfein to join you. Um, he was a key player in the book in that he advocated for the family as their legal aid lawyer. So we look forward to having you both back with us next time on Pursuing Justice. And thank you for listening today. And thank you, Andrea.
1: Thank you, Harriet.
0: Thanks for listening to my podcast today. You've been listening to Pursuing Justice on Society Bites Radio, and I'm your host, Harriet